All right, if you'll take your Bibles, please open them up to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews in the seventh chapter. Join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's word, if you would. We return again to our passage, Hebrews chapter 7, starting at verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them, and received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace and peace and understanding. We pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see the truth contained here, that you would grant that words would be given to me that would be faithful to that truth. And we pray, God, for the unction of your spirit. God, I ask that your mercy would be upon us, that your grace would be manifest. And I pray, Lord, that in everything that is done this day, that Christ alone would receive the glory and the honor. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. So the superiority of Christ in all things is the theme of the book of Hebrews. And as the writer has moved through this epistle, we have seen Christ revealed as supreme and superior in many different ways. In Hebrews 2.9, he is the object of faith, that thing, the vision that saves us. Hebrews 2.9 says, We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So we look unto Jesus, unto Jesus alone, for the hope of our salvation. In Hebrews 3.6, he is revealed as the Lord over everything that belongs unto the Father. And we are the spiritual house of God. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. Christ has been given the supreme position of authority and power and grace in everything that belongs to God. And here in Hebrews 7, we find him revealed at last as the Son of God in the person of Melchizedek, who is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. He remains a priest continually. Each of these revelations show a different face of the single truth which is being pressed, that Jesus is superior to everything, and specifically, he is superior to the Mosaic law and all of its trappings and all of its institutions. So this message of the superiority of Christ is not one that was received well by the Jews. Um, when he was on the earth, they rejected him out of hand. They, uh, they, they liked him for the first year that he was kind of burst on the scenes. Most scholars divide Jesus' ministry into three years it was three years long, but the first year was the year of obscurity. He was kind of gathering his forces, calling the disciples, doing the things that were small. But in the midst of that year of obscurity, he began to perform miracles that cast him into the public eye. And then he had the year, which was the year of his approval. And everybody loved him, and everybody was with him. And he walked around, and 20,000 people followed him everywhere he went. But then the final year of his ministry was the year of opposition. And... Um, in the year of opposition, the Jews who were in authority were continually upset with him for the entirety of his ministry. Of his ministry excuse me. But they, um, they began to really oppose him, and they began to really press him and question him, and they began to push back at the things that he was teaching, the things that he was saying, because they were listening to him. And they were hearing the things that he was saying, and they were saying, this doesn't jive with what we know. This doesn't jive with what we believe. This doesn't line up with our expectation of what Messiah is supposed to be. They might have held out hope at the very beginning that this man was actually Messiah. They might have actually held the possibility somewhere in their mind that Jesus really was the promised Messiah. But when he made no move to free them from Rome, and in fact the things that he was teaching in their mind sort of, well, it made a problem for them with Rome. It could have cost them what they actually had. 
They, they were not going to have any of it. And so they rejected him out of hand. And in the end, it's because their purposes were not in line with God's purpose. They, they didn't see what God called them to do and to be with clarity. The Jews loved the fact that they were the chosen people of God, and they clung to this truth, but they missed the point of the choosing. They had been chosen to bless the nations. They had been chosen to be a blessing to all men by the production of Messiah who would free people from sin. But instead, they believed that they were supposed to rule and be honored. They believed that they, as the chosen people of God, were to be the lords over all the earth. And they were just waiting for Messiah to come, set them free from Rome, and then reestablish the Davidic throne so that Israel would again regain its ascendancy over all the earth. And the rule of David and Solomon would be reenacted and reestablished. And so in the end, what they wanted was earthly dominion. What they wanted was earthly power. What they desired was something that would only have its power here. Now, if that doesn't sound familiar, then you're not listening to anybody else talking about what Christianity is supposed to be. And I'm, I'm glad of that. <laughs> I don't want you listening to those people because they're liars. God hasn't saved us for this life. He hasn't saved us so that we might be the lords of the earth here. He hasn't saved us so that we will have our best life now. He saved us for his purposes. He has saved us for his glory. He has saved us for holiness and for righteousness. He had chosen Israel to bless the nations with Messiah. Israel's purpose was to produce Messiah. Not for Messiah to set Israel free so that they would be the king, but Israel's whole purpose in being was to establish that which would ultimately bring about the birth of Messiah. So that everything would reveal the fullness of God's plan. There is a restoration of David's throne, but that throne is an eternal one in the heavens. There is a promised deliverance, but it is not a deliverance from Rome. It is a deliverance from sin. And in the end, the reign of David, eternal in the heavens, will indeed bring much glory and much praise and much honor. But it is Christ who sits upon the throne for all of eternity, and it is not Israel who is being honored, but the actual king himself. You see, that the purposes are completely contrary. And if you approach what God says to you with your eye fixed on the wrong purpose, you're going to get this wrong. You're not going to see him for who he is. And you're not going to receive what he's promised. Because in the end, what God does, his scope surpasses all expectations. Always. This is the same problem we struggle with today. We struggle with the scope of expectation. We, we diminish what we think God's going to do. We, we minimize it. We make it smaller. We make it easy for us to get our heads around. We make it something that we can comprehend, something that we can describe, something that we can put into three points and a, and a parable. We, we want to make sure that whatever we're telling people is something that's going to be containable because otherwise, well, we don't really have all the answers and we like having all the answers. And, and we like things that are easily understood, and we like things that we can comprehend, and we like things that, that make our lives more comfortable. Because in the end, what we really want is us. This is man's basic nature. This is how everything is at the outset. And one of the things that we have to recognize as followers of Christ is that God's scope is far beyond us having a happy comfortable life now. His scope isn't about these things. He's not necessarily opposed to you enjoying your days, but that's not his purpose. And we have to grasp that there's a scope that goes beyond the simple. And there's a scope in God's work that goes beyond the plain and the obvious. You see, in the end, Jesus came to die for our sin. He came so that God would lavish his wrath upon Christ instead of justly paying us for our evil. He came to set us free from the bondage of sin and to deliver us from the threat of hell. He came so that we would be adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High. He came to deliver us to God. And more than anything else in this life, 
That is the single most important thing, and that is the single most precious promise that could ever be given, that God would make you his own. And if your scope is not viewing that, if if your scope is too limited and, and you're just looking at things to say, all I want from you, God, is a good day today. Right? How many times have you heard somebody present a gospel that goes something like this? Just believe in Jesus and all your problems will go away. What are we promising people? Well, first of all, we're promising them a lie because Jesus said exactly the opposite. Jesus said, if you follow me, people are going to hate you. If you follow me, you're going to have trouble in this world. If you follow me, it's not going to go easy for you, but don't worry, I've overcome the world. In the end, we win. That's what Jesus promised. So what we're offering them if we say, follow Jesus and and all your problems will go away, is first of all, a lie. But second of all, what we're promising them is something so much less than what God can actually deliver. It's insulting. It's insulting to God, and it's insulting to our basic need. Because consider this for a moment. When we consider God only from a scope of the minuscule, what are we saying also about ourselves? Are we not even less than we actually are if we, say, if we believe these things? Do we not live our lives with, with some sort of an idea that we ought to be enlarging, growing, producing, becoming more, contributing, actually having value in, in the world around us? Is that not ingrained in us as, as full and complete men and women? But if we settle for less, if we say, God, all I really want you to do is make today happy for me, then what we're saying is that even at your best, I don't have any real worth. I, I, j- I just want to go my way. I just want to trundle along like, like a little ant, and I want nobody to bother me, and I just want to play, and I just want to just, just leave me be, and I'll be okay. What a pitiful life. What, what a pitiful grasp. What a pitiful scope. And, and how... Much less does it make of God than what he truly is. If that's all he can deliver, you can buy that at the liquor store. Amen? God is worth so much more than that. God is capable of so much more than we ever could possibly imagine. And and it is fruitless for us to try and cram him into our tiny little box so that we don't have to stretch and we don't have to be enlarged to, to have some sort of comprehension of who he is. But you see, when we, when we refuse to view God as he says he is, we limit the scope that we expect to see. And in the end, it blinds us. The Jews encountered, the, they encountered Christ Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, God made flesh, standing in their midst, And they couldn't comprehend that he was who he told them he was. Look at me at John chapter 8, just by way of example. I want to show you this exchange. John chapter 8, we'll start reading at verse 31. We're going to read a sizable portion of this chapter. Um, Not the totality of it. This is a whopping long chapter. But we're going to read a chunk. So we're going to start reading at verse 31. And Jesus' statements and his exchange with the Pharisees that will, in the end, culminate with them trying to kill him for one of the first times. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, We're Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. Now, I want to remind you that at this moment, they're in bondage to Rome. Just, uh, just, by, just by way of clarification. And, and I remember reading something about 70 years in Babylon, but I, I could be wrong. We, we are Abraham's descendants, and we've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say we will be made free? And Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, You shall be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. And they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. 
Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. And they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he who sent me. Now, did you notice that their father changed? Who did they declare their father was first? Abraham, and then when Jesus pressed them on that point, they backed up a little bit and went, no, 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 we only have one father, it's God. And on both counts, Jesus proved them wrong. Because both Abraham and God support Jesus. Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceed forth and came from God, and I have come, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear, because you are not of God. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets... And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets who are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered and said, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. They took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. So what was their basic conflict? They could not see Jesus for who he was. They couldn't exceed their own limitations. Their rejection of Messiah rejects also, turns into a rejection of the gospel of that Messiah. And that's still going on today. There are still people who reject Jesus because they don't like the message that the scripture gives. This same conversation with different trappings occurs constantly today. People will not let go of their own desires. They will not let go of their possessions. They will not let go of their agendas. They will not let go of their visions. They will not let go of their goals, their comforts, their pleasures, whatever it is that gives their tiny little ant lives meaning. They will not let go of it because it challenges them too much to believe that there is something more. You see, the promise of your best life now says that whatever you can dream, you can have. But what God promises is, beyond your expectations, beyond your dreams, beyond your wildest imaginations. That's why the scripture says that eye has not seen nor ear heard what the Father can do. In the end, everything that is comes from the heart and the mind of God. And we reject Him at our peril because there is absolutely nothing that will ever be promised that will deliver you from the condemnation that you are already under if you are not found in Christ apart from Jesus Christ. It's not that people do things to deserve damnation. They come into the world damned already. They come into the world condemned. From the moment that they are born, they are born into sin. And yes, they do things that contribute to that desert. But they don't have to do anything spectacularly evil to be worthy of hell. They're already worthy of hell because they hate God in their core. And we see it played out time and time and time again. When we begin to present the God of the Bible, what we find is that people reject it at every turn because they cannot exceed their expectations. They cannot reach beyond to imagine that there's something that they can't comprehend. 
That's just human nature. That's why all of man's religions are bound up in trappings of works righteousness. Do this, obey this, fulfill this law. Give me a list, guys. I can do it. Give me 10,000 little laws. I'll make them happen. But ask me to be righteous in my very nature? It's impossible. I cannot be. And that's where Jesus comes to bear, is on the very thing that is absolutely beyond our reach. He changes what we are. And he transfers us into the kingdom of his own righteousness. He gives to us his own righteousness, his own worth, his own right standing with God. And gives that to us so that we might be like him. See, we reject that. Because it's so far beyond what we expect or what we think. However, when God opens our eyes the first thing that we do is recognize that we give homage to the one who is greater. Right? We we honor him. We, We bow the knee. We admit. We confess. Jesus is Lord. So the Jews, in their worldview, they revered the patriarchs. They revered the fathers. They revered those who came before. Their ancestors were their greatest their greatest joy, their greatest pride, their greatest um, heart. And Abraham was the first to receive the promises of God's work. He is the founder of the Jewish people. He is the original patriarch. He is the father, the prince, the ruler of his family and all of its reach. His sons were each considered patriarchs. So Isaac was a patriarch of his descent. Isaac had two children. (laughs) Of his two children, Jacob was the one that God chose. And Jacob had 12 sons, and each of his 12 sons are considered patriarchs. Those are the patriarchs. There's one other patriarch listed in Scripture. They give, rever- they give credence to David as a patriarch, and that's because David established the line of kings. So these men who established the things that they revered are the ones that they honored. This was their idea. These, these men who came before, they are our hope. And in the end, consider this. Is this not also how the world sees those in power today? Do they not give homage to somebody who was lucky enough or or, or smart enough to invest their money wisely and make billions of dollars and build rocket ships and electric cars and whatever else? And and, and people who who have financial power and clout working in the background, they, they have all this power. And people honor them and revere them and they start to listen to the things that they say and they start to believe the things that they say, whether they're true or not. They start to say to themselves, oh, that person has all of this stuff, therefore they must be wise. They have all this stuff, therefore I want to listen to what they say so that I can be like them. Just open up YouTube and look at how many podcasts are devoted to making you more like somebody else. None of that's truth. None of that's reality. What what we're called to be is more like Jesus. And you don't need a podcast for that. You just need to open your Bible. Now, I'm not opposed to podcasts. They have useful information. But the point is, if your objective is to garnish some sort of favor with those who are in power in the world, so you can be like them, so you can be influencing them, so you can be influenced by them, isn't that what they call the, the, the people who, who have YouTube channels? Are they not called influencers? That's sort of a telling label, isn't it? It, It's revealing that in the end, we desire something that's not necessarily found in God. They, They long to be counted as one of those people. So, what the writer of Hebrews does is very wisely, very almost sneakily, He brings us to this place where their greatest ancestor, the one that they revere above all, bends his knee in submission to Christ in the person of Melchizedek. If if Abraham is the cat's meow, if he's the big dog in everything that they hope for and everything that they want, and all of a sudden what they find is that Abraham bent the knee in submission to Melchizedek, and, and what the writer of Hebrews points out to us is that Melchizedek is either a type of Christ or Christ himself in pre-incarnate form. I, I tend towards the latter, but I'm not going to dicker the point. It, it's certainly debated enough among people that I respect and have a whole lot more brain than I'll ever possess. That's okay. 
My, my point is this. If, if Abraham recognized the greatness in Melchizedek and bent the knee, then everyone who looks to Abraham should get the point. Amen? Everyone who looks to Abraham and says, yeah, Abraham's our guy. We want to be just like him. Okay, then let me introduce you to this one that Abraham said was greater. Let me bring you to the place of submission because the greater is always to be honored by the lesser. The one who has more should always be honored by the one who does not. So Abraham submitted to Melchizedek and honored him with a tithe of the spoils. Did Melchizedek have anything to do with the battle? Nope. Did he go out and pray and bless them and, and give them a good talking to before they went? Nope. Did, what, did, was there anything that Melchizedek did except come out of his city when Abram passed by and took the prerogative as provider to feed Abraham and his army? No. He showed his own greatness, and Abraham recognized that greatness and yielded to it. And then Abraham gave to him a tithe, a tenth of everything that had been captured in the battle. And he, by doing that, he yielded his own rights. He understood that there was a whole lot more in play here than merely the physical. This is not just a physical exchange. And we'll get to one of the indications of that in just a few minutes. But, but for right this moment, understand that there's more going on here than just a physical payment. He wasn't paying for a meal. That, that's the point I want to make right now. There was something else going on. Because whatever Melchizedek brought out of his city to feed Abram and his army with, it wasn't worth a tenth of the spoils. Right? So what Abraham shows us by giving a tithe instead of a payment is that he was honoring something more than just the provision. They hadn't just gone and purchased supplies, okay? So, so there's a yielding going on here. There is an act of submission. And he understood that in the end, God was the overall goal and that God himself was being honored in his actions. Now this means for us today in this place that we have to recognize that there is more going on than we can see with our eyes. Is God always at work in our lives? Absolutely He is. Is God always at work around us? Without question. Does God have purposes that exceed our understanding? Oh yes, He does. And we have to learn to measure the world by a different gauge than the world uses. We are not like once-born worldlings who cannot think like God thinks. Now, I understand that sounds like an incredibly arrogant statement because what I just implied is that we can think like God thinks. But Scripture says, we have the mind of Christ. Do we make use of it? No. <laughs> of course not. But does that mean we don't have it? No. Beloved, hear this. When God gave you His Holy Spirit, part of the exchange, part of the gift of the presence of the Holy Spirit living inside you is the mind of Christ. You have access to the very mind and heart of God, period. That's something the world will never possess. They can't. They scramble about in the dark. They're like the blind men with the elephant, right? One man sees a trunk, and one man holds a leg, and one man grabs a tail, and their picture of the elephant is far different than the elephant actually is. And, and this is our world. They are constantly changing the story. They're constantly changing the information. They're constantly changing the goal. They're constantly altering everything, because in the end, they have no idea what they're doing. And those that do know what they're doing are purely evil, and you don't want to know what they know anyway. This, this is a mad world in which we live. And we do not need to run to their drum and march to their beat and try to act in a way that pleases them, because you will never please them. Have you ever had anybody in your life that, that says, this is what I want you to do, and you do it, and as soon as you do it, they go, that's not what I meant. This is what I want you to do. And you do that, and as soon as you do it, 
They go, no, 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 that's not what I meant. And no matter what you do, they're always changing the goal and always changing the expectation and always moving the objective. Isn't that frustrating? I've worked for people like that for a very little while. It's like getting caught in a meat grinder. And in the end, either I quit or they fire me because I get stupid and I get ugly. But that's neither here nor there. But the point is that we must recognize the truth that God is the one who sets the goals that we need to be seeking. And God is the one who has established the standards that we are aimed at. And those goals and those standards never change. So we don't need to judge the things that are around us by the changing understanding of a darkened world. We do not need to judge truth according to what makes people happy. I'm sorry that there are a lot of people that right now are very confused about their gender. But God is very plain about the question. There are men and there are women and never the twain shall switch and there are nothing else. Period. This is not a complicated question. This is a question of sin and rebellion. I'm sorry that in this time there are a lot of people and some of them would tell you they're Christians who believe that it's perfectly acceptable to murder babies. But God is very plain that that is not acceptable under any circumstances, at any time, by any method, or for any reason. Murder is murder, and it is not acceptable. And I'm sorry that the standards are so changing and so constantly varied that people who ought to know the truth, who are followers of Christ Jesus, are becoming confused by the diatribes and the narratives that are going on around them. Because what we must do is return to a standard of the word of God and understand that we have the mind of Christ. And God speaks truth to us plainly always. Had Israel understood this, they might have had a better chance of following what Jesus was saying. You see, this world will one day pass away and everything in it is going to vanish. And if your objective is to simply have the things of this world, what are you going to have when they're gone? Nothing. That moment of pleasure, that moment of entertainment, that moment of amusement, that moment of, I don't want to do anything, I'm just going to, nothing. That's fine. Once in a while, have a moment when you don't do anything. But if that's your life, what do you have at the end of it? A whole lot of nothing. Emptiness. Purposelessness. You are adrift in the void. You see, if we live our lives for this world and for this life, we will always lose. We will always come up short in the exchange. What we need to remember is that God himself has called us to greatness. He's given you hope and he's given you courage and he's given you a perspective that goes beyond this. We have to know that true greatness lies in the unmerited favor of God and fundamentally true greatness rests in this one thing. Hear me. True greatness rests in your relationship to Jesus Christ. Because if you are found in Christ, you are a blood-bought child of God. And there is nothing that the world could ever offer you that will even come close to the worth of that statement. God purchased you with his own blood. And he purchased you to make you his child. He adopted you into his family. He made you his son or his daughter. And you are beloved of God. And there is nothing that the world can ever promise you. There is nothing that the world can ever hold in front of you. There is nothing that the world can ever even hint at that is worth one moment of sacrificing what it is to be a child of God. That requires you to believe what God has said instead of what the world says. And the rest of the greatness that has been given to us as children of God is that God has declared that we are priests and kings of God under Christ. So where Israel thought we ought to be the lords of the earth, God says to the church, you are the lords of the earth. I have made you kings. 
I have made you priests. I have made you great in the things that matter. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6 says, God has made us kings and priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So what does this mean when we start to think about Abraham submitting to Melchizedek? Well, there's a tension here that exists between authority and submission. There is a constraint. And the picture that the writer of Hebrews uses is the tribe of Levi collecting tithes from the rest of Israel. There is a constraint placed upon them. Look real quick at Numbers chapter 18. Numbers chapter 18. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here. Number chapter 18, starting at verse 21. Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Hereafter the children of Israel shall not come near the tabernacle of meeting lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall perform the work of the tabernacle of meeting and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that they among the children of Israel shall have no inheritance. For the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer up as a heave offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore I have said to them, among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. Now, they were set above the rest of Israel in this matter. And yet... Again, the writer of Hebrews making a point. While they were still in the loins of Abraham, they too paid tithes to Melchizedek. So we have this, our, our father Abraham is greater than all. Well, he wasn't greater than Melchizedek because he paid homage to him. Well, the priesthood of the Levites is greater than everything else because we all pay tithes to them. We acknowledge their greatness and we bow down and, and submit to them and the authority that God has given to them. And that's all well and true, but they also gave homage to Melchizedek. So what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is cutting away their support. He's cutting away their excuses. He's cutting away their ability to say, well, that doesn't really apply to us. But more than that, I want you to see the, the truth here that the, the Levites were set apart and given this position of responsibility, this tension existed between the authority that they had, but the truth that all authority itself is derived from somewhere. So in your authority, there is also the truth of submission. This is biblical truth throughout, even as, as Paul lays out for us in Philippians, when everything is laid under the feet of Christ, he himself will lay everything at the feet of God, so that God may be all in all. All authority is derived in submission. So as the Levites paid tribute and, and gave tithes while still in the loins of Abraham, they are acknowledging that they are inferior and in honor and majesty to the one who receives their worship. Right? They're the one who's receiving their gift, the one who's receiving this giving of tithe, they are inferior to him in majesty. They are inferior to him. And they received this command under the law. Right? We just read here in, in, in Numbers where the law dictates that they will give the tithe or they receive the tithes. So their authority is part of the law. So if they are submitting to the greatness of Melchizedek and their authority is derived under the law, remember all authority is derived, what does it tell us about the authority that they have? Where does it submit? Also to Melchizedek. Thus the law yields to Christ. You follow that? If their authority is constrained here, and the authority that they have is derived from the statement of God according to the law, but then they are yielding their authority, they are submitting to, Ab or they are submitting to Melchizedek while still in Abraham, then even the authority, the law itself, submits to Christ. And we need to see this. This is really intelligent logic. And I, I, I give judgment on God's word here, right? <laughs> this is masterful. 
This idea that every argument that they have, which says, no, 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 we have our thing, already God had prepared a way by which we see that thing wasn't supposed to ever be the thing. We can, we can recognize the truth in Galatians where it says that the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. But somebody's going to say, well, that's just the New Testament writer trying to make it say something it's not supposed to say. So what God has done is even before Abraham had fathered anyone, God has had them all yield. God has had them all submit. God has had them all pay tribute to Christ so that there could be no room for the argument that anything is more superior than Christ. Because nothing is greater than Christ. Nothing stands above him. Nothing lifts its head against his majesty and says, this is mine. See, Melchizedek, he predates the law by centuries. Right? At least 400 years in Egypt, plus however long Abraham lived to get to that point, call it 600 years from Abraham until the Exodus. That's a long time ahead of the law. And Abraham yields and submits to this one. And in the end, this this exchange about authority, it echoes into the ministry of Christ in his conversations with the Jews. Do you remember in Luke and in Matthew as well, the, the Jews ask him, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus tells them, I'll tell you what authority I, I use, but first you'll answer me a question. Whose authority, the baptism of John, by whose authority? And the Jews reasoned among themselves and they said, if we say it was from God, then he's going to say, why didn't you listen to him? And if we say it wasn't from God, then the crowds are going to kill us because they all think it was from God. So we don't know. (laughs) And Jesus said, fine, I'm not going to tell you either. What they were getting at was something fundamental. And the question itself wasn't wrong. The intent of the question was wrong. But the question itself wasn't wrong. By what authority? So let me ask you the question. By what authority did Jesus do what he did? He told them already lots of times before. We read in John chapter 8, he told them, I don't do anything of my own will. I do what the Father told me to do. By whose authority does Jesus do what he does? By the authority of God. It's important for you to understand this statement. It's important for you to understand this truth. Because Jesus is not opposed to God being God over everything. The supremacy of Christ over all things does not mean that Jesus is somehow superior to God the Father. The triune God exists in harmony, and there is authority even within the Trinity. Now, this is really deep water, and I don't want to get out too far lest I drown. But but understand this. There is a, a, a modicum of authority. There is a proper order within the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Scripture affirms this over and over and over again. And for us to try and put them at odds, it's just foolishness. We must recognize the truth that what Jesus is, is obedient to the Father. Now, when the Jews rejected God choosing Jesus, setting him apart and and bringing Messiah into the world in a way that they didn't necessarily approve of, We need to recognize that it wasn't necessarily a new stratagem. Israel had been rejecting God's methodologies for a long time, even to the choosing of the priesthood. So recognize this this idea. We've been reading through Numbers, and so not too long ago, we read about the rebellion of Korah. Remember? And and at, at the rebellion of Korah, Korah, who was a Levite, was angry that Aaron had been given the priesthood and Moses, being a Levite, was leading Israel. And they basically said, in, in I think it's uh, number 16, yeah, they, um, they set up to say, you take too much on yourselves. And so Moses took this complaint to God because Moses was more humble than any man, he writes. <laughs> Which is one of the great ironies of Scripture. <laughs> Moses took this to God and God said, okay, Bring them all here. 
And he said, everybody will, uh, will, will kindle fire and the offering that I accept, I will accept and everybody else will be killed. And Moses basically said to the people, if, if God does a new thing and the ground opens up and swallows them, then you'll know that they were liars. And that's exactly what happened. So, even those who were rebelling against the authority that God had established for the priesthood, just think about that for a minute. These were Levites. These were men who had been chosen and set apart by God. These were men who had been given responsibility and authority over the, the, the life of Israel. But what they wanted was what? More. I, I want to be the priests. I want to be the high priest. I want to be the one who's on top of the heap. I'm not satisfied to just be a servant of the priest. I want to be the big dog. Well, who gets to choose who the big dog is? God, and only God, and nobody else ever. How much of what we hear in the world today being bandied about by people who, well, by people who want to be something that they're not, really comes down to this basic desire. I want to be the one who establishes the right order of things. I want to be the one who decides who does what, who goes where, who has what. I want to be the one who decides who who amasses wealth and who doesn't. I want to be the one who decides who eats and who doesn't. I want to be the one who's in control of every aspect of everybody's life. How much of that is going on in the world around us today? More than you can possibly imagine. It's occurring at every level of society, and it's occurring both in front of you and behind the scenes. Now, what's interesting is that when Korah began his rebellion, he brought out a legitimate point. And the point that he made was, we are all a holy nation, and we are all the children of God. We are a reserved people. We are a holy people. And that is completely true. But you take that truth and misapply it to your doom. Being a holy people, being a precious nation, being somebody reserved by God for his own purposes means that you are reserved by God for his own purposes, not yours. Look at me at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter addressing this very issue. We'll start reading at verse 4. He says this. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, And he who believes in him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And just like them, we must acknowledge that our authority and privilege is rooted in our submission to God's choosing and purpose. Now, I want you to notice something really interesting in this passage. Look at verse 7. To you who believe, he is precious. To those who don't believe, is that what it says? No. To those who are disobedient. So the contrast between belief and disobedience, I find compelling. What does it imply to us? That belief, genuine belief, always brings about obedience. And that disbelief always brings about disobedience. See, these terms we don't think of as interchangeable, disbelief and disobedience. But we are commanded to believe God. 
We are commanded to repent. We are commanded to take him at his word. And we are commanded to not only do what he says, but to love what he says. So when we believe God and when we obey, it changes how we see things. And he is precious to us once we believe. And notice the purpose in us being set apart as kings and priests, a royal generation. It is that we might declare his praises. Our privilege lies in submission to his greatness. So in the end, if we're going to be faithful to what we are called to be, then what we have to get our heads around is that our life is not our own, our purposes are not our own, our goals are not our own, our agenda is not our own. We have been set apart to do God's work and God's will and sing His praises all the days that we have been granted life. That's why we're here. That's why you have been chosen. That's why you have been given this great and glorious privilege. And to refuse to bend the knee to the one who is greatest of all is rebellion against God. It is rank disbelief, but it is also outright disobedience and rebellion. This is the conundrum that we find in the world around us. Now, there's something else that comes with this. And this is really cool. I think I have time to get it cranked out. I'm going to try. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Right? So the one who is greater blesses the one who is less. The one who is greater blesses the blessed. Abraham already was chosen of God. Abraham was already God's guy. Melchizedek added blessing to blessing. Now, here's what's interesting. Bless you. Here's what's interesting. The the reality is, is that the greater blesses the lesser. Okay? If Abraham already had the blessings of God upon him, had already been chosen as God's guy, as the one whose very loins were going to produce... Messiah, who he was standing in front of, which that'll that'll cause you to get your head in a whirl in a minute, but (laughs) just think on that, but later, (laughs) I'll try and get through this. How much does it tell us about the dignity and honor and majesty of the one who is blessing the one who has been blessed of God? How much greater does it make him to stand before this man who has been given the full promises of God and, in the end, give him something else. How wondrous is this? You see, always our scope is too limited. Always our our appreciation of what God has done and is doing is too small. Always we, we are trying to figure it out based on our own ideas and our own work. And the greater honor is bestowed upon the one doing the blessing when it is received well by the one who is being blessed. So as Abraham received the blessing that Melchizedek gave him, he was enhancing the honor of Melchizedek, not only before those who were present right then, but objectively he was enhancing the honor of Melchizedek to those who followed after. Right? If somebody says, yeah, you know what, I, I, I want to bless you and I want to give you my old beater of a car. And you look at that car and you go, I don't want that. Have you just dishonored the guy that wants to give you something nice? Maybe it's the best he's got, right? You receive what you've been given with joy and with contentment and, and with praise and gratitude. What you do with it after that? Well, that's your own business, but... Be be gracious in that, right? And Abraham wasn't putting on here. He wasn't pretending. It wasn't that he was getting a, a minuscule blessing. The point I'm laboring to make is that by even receiving the blessing and by acknowledging Melchizedek's right to bless him, he is exalting Melchizedek for all who watch. He is exalting Melchizedek for his own descent to say, look, pay attention to this guy. You know what's remarkable about that truth? Melchizedek is not even a blip on the Jewish radar. 
He's mentioned one other time in Psalms, just in passing. I've made you a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, what the writer of Hebrews quotes here in Hebrews 7. I think it's Psalm 110. Other than that, the Jews paid no attention to this instance when their great patriarch paid homage to one who had no right to receive it. Isn't that amazing? Why? Because God hasn't opened their eyes to the truth. Why are you understanding this? Because God has opened your eyes. What mercy is this? This is the purpose of God. And by doing that, we then see the glory of God displayed around us constantly. That's why Jesus told the Jews, Your father Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Because Abraham did. God had opened his eyes. He understood something profoundly important that God himself was giving. And he joyfully submitted to his better. Now, I want you to understand this. You may know all the promises of God. You may have scripture memorized so much that you have the whole thing. You you may understand great and deep truths. But all of the intellectual understanding that the world can ever accomplish means nothing if you do not have the God who actually blesses. All the head knowledge in the world cannot save you. It is only the intercession of God himself that changes our hearts. And it is only the fact that God himself desires to bless us that makes us able to see that truth. Jesus Christ is the crux of the whole matter. And beloved, hear me, the world is blind to his glory. They're blind. What do we have to give them the hope of the gospel? We have the truth of God's word. We don't need gimmicks. We don't need games. We don't need apps. We don't need puppets. We don't need clowns. We don't need strong men bending rods of iron around their neck or any of those other weird things that people call church. What we need is the word of God faithfully proclaimed. We read this morning, the law of the Lord is perfect. Doing what? Converting the soul. It is the word of God. And in Revelation, it tells us that they will overcome the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. In the end, God has given to us everything that's needful to powerfully and effectively advance the gospel, to advance the kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because He is greater than everything. We declare his praises, we declare his honor, we declare his majesty, and we are blessed in the telling. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, All of the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God the Father through us. Or to us, excuse me. It tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that God has blessed us in Jesus Christ with everything. The fullness of all of the blessings of God are given to us in Christ. Everything you need is found in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. That's why Paul writes in Timothy, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. And in Revelation chapter 5, starting at verse 11, it says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing in every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said Amen and the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Our worship of Christ as Christ will never end. And our declaration of His glory and majesty and praising Him for what He has done will never cease. 
Beloved, everything points to the superiority, to the supremacy of Christ in everything. And and we have to be clear about this. Because there are so many lies that want to distract us from the supremacy of Christ. There are so many things that we want to do and so many ways that we want to try and just twist the message just a little bit to make it a little more appealing. Fight against that with everything that's in you. Speak the gospel plainly. Speak the truth of Christ. Give praises to the Lamb who was slain. And extol His name. And let no one have anything that is His. That's our calling. And therein lies our greatness. Because we have been chosen by God for this purpose. And no one can stop us. When you speak the truth, the truth does its work. It always will. Because God will always triumph. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace, peace, and glory in this day. I pray, God, that you give us a perspective on Christ that lifts him high above everything else. And I pray, God, that over all that we do and all that we say, that Jesus be exalted in our eyes and in our minds. Lord, help us be found faithful and help us be found pleasing. God, we want to honor Jesus. And we know that we fail at this so often and we know, God, that we get this so wrong in so many ways. But we want to please you and we want to honor Christ. Help us do this in a way that is right. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.